Welcome to the second of three podcasts on applying antimicrobial stewardship principles to the treatment of community-acquired bacterial pneumonia, or CABP, and acute bacterial skin and skin structure infections, or ABSSSI. This discussion, entitled Controversies and Conundrums in the Treatment of Community-Acquired Bacterial Pneumonia, was produced by ASHP Advantage and supported by an educational grant from Forest Research Institute, a subsidiary of Forest Laboratories, Incorporated. It was recorded in December 2013 during the 48th ASHP Mid-Year Clinical Meeting and Exhibition in Orlando, Florida. In this podcast, Scott Bergman is interviewed by John Esterly, Initiative Chair. Dr. Scott Bergman is here with us today, and he's going to help add some of his expert opinion in shedding some light on some of the following controversies we're going to discuss. So, Dr. Bergman, Medicare is looking closer at mortality and readmission outcomes in patients with pneumonia and other costly high-volume diseases. What can a health system pharmacist do to help improve patient outcomes and protect the hospital from costly penalties? Well, John, with increasing resistance and higher stakes for poor patient outcomes, dosing of antimicrobials seems like it is more important than ever. And I think this is one area where pharmacists could play a key role. If using a fluoroquinolone, for example, the high dose of levofloxacin, 750 milligram daily, has been shown to be safe and effective for hospitalized patients, including the elderly that qualify for Medicare, as long as it's appropriately dosed for renal function. This is a five-day course that has shown to be uh, just as effective as longer 10-day courses. This will put patients at less risk of developing resistance and also potentially costly side effects like Clostridium difficile-associated diarrhea and infection. I think that short courses are one of the most underutilized antimicrobial stewardship strategies in place today. Uh, Physicians are understandably worried about each patient's well-being, and they often tell me that they want to continue antibiotics for just a few more days. But when using fluoroquinolones and extended-spectrum cephalosporins, however, they need to be reminded of that increased risk of disrupting the delicate balance of the gastrointestinal flora for each additional day of therapy. Day number three of treatment is always a good day to evaluate patients for changes from IV to PO therapy. By that time, most patients are stable, and they can be converted from IV to oral. And this is pretty standard now, but it's also a good opportunity to suggest de-escalation of therapy from these broad-spectrum antibiotics to agents that have a narrower coverage and may not disrupt the GI flora as much. I rarely see de-escalation in community-acquired pneumonia patients, however. It occurs routinely in ICU patients, and that's because we're using broad-spectrum antibiotics up front to make sure we have appropriate therapy on day one. And then we know not every patient really has multidrug-resistant pathogens, so we step down and watch the patient while they're in the hospital. Community-acquired pneumonia patients, though, are often treated on the, the medical floors, and we do have constant supervision with nurses available in acute care hospitals. So I think this would be an opportunity where we could improve an antimicrobial stewardship, and I hope we see more studies in this area in the future. Is there a way to know what we are treating or when a short course may be sufficient? 
Well, from a duration of therapy standpoint, guidelines recommend continuing treatment for 48 to 72 hours after the patient is afebrile and clinically stable. You can use cultures and gram stain results as a guide. For example, if a patient has a gram-positive cocci in pairs or the sputum culture uh, it doesn't really grow anything at all, it's safe to assume you need to treat for streptococcus pneumoniae, and treatment for atypical pathogens is included in most uh, pneumonia therapies in patients coming from the community. If you have a gram stain with a gram-positive cocci, however, you can target therapy with a beta-lactam alone. Newer technologies that are being introduced, such as PCR, will give us a better idea of what organisms a patient has, even if it's a virus, and you can stop therapy altogether at that point. Those will help us in the next five years to be better stewards of our antimicrobial therapy. Finally, procalcitonin is a relevant biomarker in patients with pneumonia and upper respiratory tract infections that will be elevated, and in studies that have tested it serially, it's shown a decrease in antibiotic use and even length of ICU stays. Uh, this is something that has emerging data, even when used once, as long as there's somebody to follow up on that data, can show a decrease in antibiotic use. So this is another area where pharmacists could be involved and help monitor these patients. So can you explain a little bit more about beta-lactam resistance and how it impacts therapy choices for pneumonia? Sure. The main thing that we worry about in community-acquired bacterial pneumonia is streptococcus pneumoniae that's resistant to penicillins and other respiratory tract drugs. Uh, these are uh, developing because strep pneumo alters its penicillin-binding proteins gradually, uh, amoxicillin can make up for some of this and overcome resistance with higher doses if it's in the intermediate range. Uh, this isn't an uh, organism that produces beta-lactamase, so the beta-lactamase inhibitors don't necessarily help with streptococcus pneumoniae, but they do help with some of the respiratory gram-negative pathogens like Haemophilus influenzae and Moraxella cateralis. Haemophilus beta-lactamase production has been on the rise over the last 10 years, up from about 20% now, closer to 40 or 50%, which has led IDSA, the Infectious Disease Society of America, to recommend beta-lactamase inhibitors in more infections that affect the upper respiratory tract. Now, Moraxella cateralis is something that does occur more in those infections and almost universally produces beta-lactamase. But these are things like uh, acute otitis media, something that pediatrics deals with more than adults. Now, Staph aureus is rare in community-acquired pneumonia, but it's prevalent in skin infections that have purulence or pus. It, it usually produces a penicillinase, which is a simple beta-lactamase that breaks down plain penicillin or amoxicillin, and that's why we use drugs like dicloxacillin or the cephalosporins for the methicillin-susceptible strains. MRSA, though, is an all-or-none phenomenon, unlike in streptococcus pneumoniae, where all of the penicillin-binding proteins are changed at once. For this, we need uh, drugs like vancomycin or ceftaroline and tigacycline, linazolid, for acutely ill patients 
But those that aren't so ill do just as well on trimethoprim sulfa, doxycycline, or clindamycin if it's a community-acquired skin infection. Finally, beta-hemolytic streptococcus are universally susceptible to penicillins and beta-lactams for the most part. These are things like group A and group B strep, and they're predictably causing non-purulent skin infections, so the ones that don't have an abscess or any pus formation. So azithromycin is a frequently prescribed drug, and there's been some controversy about the use of it in the news recently. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Well, there actually has been two major studies in the last year, the first of which led to an FDA alert earlier this year in 2013, and uh, the second was a follow-up to that. The first had patients in the Tennessee Medicaid program that were prescribed azithromycin for presumably respiratory tract infections over the last decade, and they found that there was an increased risk of sudden cardiac death during the five days of therapy while patients were on that therapy. They also evaluated five days after therapy because of its long half-life, and even one month after therapy. They used a couple comparators. One was amoxicillin, since it has similar indications, And the theory being with macrolides or azithromycin, they can prolong the QT interval, and patients at baseline cardiac risk may may have a problem with that, as shown in earlier studies with erythromycin. This wasn't really known to be a fact with azithromycin, though, being that it's a, a subclass called the azolides. This study showed that azithromycin had an increased risk that led to 47 more deaths out of 1 million patients. So it was a a very large database, but did show statistically significant increase in risk of sudden cardiac death. It was primarily in those patients that already had cardiovascular risk factors. So I think this is something that the FDA was trying to make uh, prescribers more aware of, that our drugs do have side effects, and sometimes we don't know about them until long after they're approved and marketed. The follow-up study was in an older population, whereas the first one was in 65 and older where the risk occurred. The other study was in Europe using patients under the age of 65. This was not able to show any statistically significant difference in outcomes. So I think the bottom line is that we need to be careful with any antibiotic we're prescribing and make sure we weigh the risks and benefits of treatment But for the most part, we should feel comfortable with azithromycin in in younger, healthier patients where it is indicated in the guidelines to be used. But in older, sicker patients, we we have to be careful. Now, the alternative of levofloxacin also did have some warning signs in that original Tennessee Medicaid study showing that it may also have an increased risk of death, and it, too, does prolong the QT interval, So that's something that bears watching in the next few years. Thank you, Dr. Bergman, for sharing your insight on these interesting topics. I'm sure our audience will find them very beneficial. This concludes the second interview in this three-part series on managing the treatment of CABP and ABSSSI. Explore the initiative website for additional educational offerings, including the three podcasts in this series, 
an on-demand webcast of the live activity presented at the 48th ASHP Mid-Year Clinical Meeting, and two e-newsletters addressing regulatory and treatment updates. Visit the initiative website at www.ashpadvantage.com forward slash ID. Thank you for your interest in this important topic.